1: You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. Today I'm talking to Rosemary Hill, a contributing editor at the LRB, whose most recent book is Time's Witness, History in the Age of Romanticism. She has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on the 20th century British painter John Craxton. It's a review of a new biography of Craxton by Ian Collins. Hello, Rosemary, and thank you for joining me. Hello. John Craxton, to the extent he's thought about at all, is now seen as a peripheral figure in 20th century British art. And of all the artists you mentioned in your piece, he's possibly the least famous. But that wouldn't have been predictable in 1944, say, would it? As a young painter full of promise, did he seem destined for greatness?
0: Well, he was part of that generation that came up with Lucian Freud, who was his exact contemporary, and also a younger contemporary of Graham Sutherland, And he was seen very much in that way as part of the... particularly in the post-war period because he really launched himself during the war. He couldn't fight. He escaped conscription because he was just too kind of thin and ill-looking. The army took one look and said, no, thank you. And by the time the war ended... And everyone, of course, was looking for new starts and new hope. He was very much part of what post-war art was going to be with the others, with Moore and Hepworth. And yet now, as you say, he has been very largely forgotten, which is why I think Collins's biography is such a a welcome arrival.
1: And he was classified as a neo-romantic.
0: Well, that was the real, I have to say, having always liked Craxton's work, when I came to this book, I did very much have him in my mind as part of the neo-romantics. Minton, Ayrton, Craxton, they all were bracketed together, they still are really bracketed together in English art history as it is written, as part of the post-war neo-romanticism, this idea that one way of getting over the horrors of the war was to return to an English pastoral tradition, the tradition of Blake and Samuel Palmer. And um, Craxton admired Samuel Palmer very much, but he certainly wasn't really neo-romantic. But somehow his reputation got stuck there. And there was a big um, exhibition in 1987 in London, about um, the neo-romantics, as they were called, which kind of pinned poor Craxton into that moment, which really wasn't true, because apart from anything else, as he said himself, he complained very much about the exhibition, um, he wasn't... I mean, apart from every, anything else, the, everyone else in that grouping, apart from Craxton, by the time the exhibition happened, they were all dead. I mean, he was... Um, partly a different generation, but mainly just a different temperament. He wasn't a romantic. He didn't long for anything that he didn't have. He had a very happy life full of all the things he wanted, which were basically Greece and sunshine and on-off love affairs with Greek sailors and lots of friends and just about enough money.
1: But the influence of Samuel Palmer, William Blake, if you look at, I don't know, an early painting like Landscape with Poet and Birdcatcher... early 1940s you can I mean you can look at that and you can see Palmer and and Blake in it but was that neo-romantic label sort of imposed in that 80s exhibition was he already described in that way in the 50s
0: he was already I think seen like that and the the problem with his reputation being there I think there were two questions really aren't there is he underrated I think he is to a certain extent, though perhaps not quite so much as his very loyal biographer does. But the other point is, is he just kind of misfiled? Is he in the wrong box in art history? And that, I think, is certainly true, because in a rather... I mean, certainly, of course, he was influenced by by Palmer, and he was always interested in landscape. But he moved away from the British landscape, the English landscape, with all that kind of rain-soaked memory-soaked history for the much brighter harder surfaces that that a greek landscape presented him with but i think it was just that he he moved away he went away he didn't work at his reputation he lived largely outside england for as much of his life as he could and so he was sort of forgotten because his contemporaries who were in that near romantic ex- exhibition lost paradise they, th- those were early pictures that were shown then, and it was understood that they had moved on. Um, whereas, as I say, Craxton, in the public memory, got stuck.
1: And as if you go back to a bit of biography, he was born in 1922, sort of an, <clears throat> an exact contemporary of Lucian Freud, as you said, and he grew up... And I have to say that he was the son of Harold Craxton, whose name was familiar to me before John Craxton's with was as the editor of Beethoven's Piano Sonatas, but he was also, he was a pianist and piano teacher and and John was one of six children in this chaotic household in St. John's Wood.
0: Yes, I mean it was obviously a very shambolic family and the difference, because I hadn't heard of Harold Craxton, only of John, um, and there in itself is a kind of lesson about how fame actually works. And they were all... Harold had been a great accompanist to all the big Edwardian divas, but he'd never had any formal qualifications. And indeed, his son never got any formal qualifications. And the whole household seems to have operated on a kind of moral economy of happiness, Essie, his, his, Craxton's mother, who somehow managed to keep all the, um, well, she managed to keep the finances just about together. And they were very good at finding the right person, the right opportunity at the right time, though not necessarily in the right way.
1: And that opportunity for, for John Craxton came through the magazine Horizon, and in particular Peter Watson. Right. So who yes. was who was a family friend?
0: He was one. Well, the, the house was always full of people drifting in and out. I mean, at the age of eight, Essie had managed to introduce her her son to Mortimer Wheeler, who was the most famous archaeologist of the day. Because John had shown an interest in archaeology, and later on, he met Peter Watson through somebody who was lodging in the house, and that was his big break, really, because it brought him out into the world. And Peter Watson was an amazingly kind, tolerant, wealthy supporter to a number of artists and, indeed, to that whole... He was central to that whole horizon group who had huge influence in framing the, the post-war English cultural scene.
1: Yes, that was Cyril Connolly and Stephen Spender and...
0: Yes, yeah, that of them. whole set. And also, but very much poets, artists writers all in together. It wasn't a kind of narrowly literary or narrowly artistic world. And um, Craxton thrived on it. He was incredibly sociable. Everybody enjoyed his company. Everyone was pleased to see him. Um, And that did him no harm at all.
1: And so his interest in in Greece began before he ever went there, didn't it? Through the his interest in archaeology through
0: the interest in archaeology, and he discovered um, the Pitt Rivers Collection at Oxford. And he also he saw Cycladic art, and it somehow immediately spoke to him. And later on, he said that, that one of the interesting things about Greek art, particularly mosaic Byzantine art, was that it had discovered what the cubists later thought that they had invented um, about how you could internalize perspective. And it, this was something as he was. Craxton was hopeless at school. He was sent to all these progressive schools where he made no progress at all and was just endlessly expelled. But it was because he knew what he wanted to do. He wanted to paint. He wanted to go where these art forms were, which he discovered was Greece, principally. And everything else just didn't make any impact on him.
1: And he and he was a terrible speller as well. That he, that's right. People talk about his.
0: (laughs) Yes, um, yes. His spelling of schizophrenic has to be seen to be believed. But no, his and his friends referred to his spelling as Anglo craxton But he had he was a great communicator, so the the spelling thing didn't matter.
1: And he started painting scenes that he claimed to be in Greece right before he ever went to Greece. That he there was scenes that he would take as were, They were Welsh landscapes that he then called. Greek fishermen and, and things yes.
0: like that. Yes. Well, he had to improvise. I mean, it was very unlikely that he would have gone as a child to Greece, and he certainly didn't. Um, it would have been very difficult for the family to do that. Um, and then, of course, the war came, so it was impossible. So he had to make it up, but then, you know, that's what artists do.
1: But then as soon as he could, I mean, he did go to Greece in, what, in 1946, so pretty much as soon as he was able to after the war finished.
0: Yes. And it wasn't, it was, this was long before package holidays, there was a civil war going on. Um, And he was absolutely physically fearless because it was dangerous um, to travel in Greece. But one of the things that protected him was that he spoke very very good Greek, apparently very peculiar Greek, um, which he learned from the chauffeurs at the British Embassy. I mean, it was very typical of Craxton's combination of high bohemia and, low here, if you like. But he got to Greece because he met at a show opening, an exhibition opening in Zurich. He met the British ambassador's wife, and he's in, the wife of the British ambassador in Athens. And he said um, he wanted to go to Greece. And she said, well, she just remembered that she'd left a bomber that she'd borrowed. She wanted to go to London to get new curtains for the embassy. Anyway, she'd left this bomber in Milan. And if he wanted a lift back, to greece um he could come with so he did and um but at the same time and he he learned greek from the chauffeurs in the greek embassy because the ambassador himself was not so keen on having Craxton in the embassy so he had to move out to the staff quarters and because he spoke this very fluent demotic greek he, and was very charming, he often managed to get himself out of very difficult situations, which others didn't. Travelling in Greece during the Civil War was extremely dangerous, whoever you were.
1: When Byron was in Italy, supposedly he spoke sort of incredibly fluent Italian in one sense, that he would, but it was completely ungrammatical, but he was able to speak it at great speed and with a wide vocabulary, and, and that and his charm Yes. made him he got by.
0: Certainly, Craxton's Greek caused people to wonder what on earth, where on earth he had come from. One of the maids in one of these grand houses, when he rang up, said there was a lorry driver on the line. She couldn't believe. Um, and he used to frighten, when he was in London, he used to frighten waiters in Greek restaurants by suddenly letting fly with this great stream of demotic obscenities while they were explaining what a kebab was. Um, so... Yes, I mean great charm, but also he was genuinely very interested in people. He lived with you know in took rooms with all sorts of people, many of them very poor. He was used to living in a household where there wasn't much money, and everyone had to pull their weight and he won the trust of the people he stayed with because, as I say, because he spoke their language
1: yeah and and the effects on his painting the painting that we reproduced in the paper with your piece is hotel by the sea which he painted in a greek landscape that he painted in greece rather than wales yes and is that can you the difference in the light oh the light is you can sort of see immediately in the painting
0: yeah the light is everything and i don't think even if he'd wanted to he could have gone back i mean once you see it in painters sometimes that they if they move geographically at a certain point in their life the light changes forever and as I say, even if they want to go back, they can't. It was what he was looking for, and he found it, this bright, hard light, um, hard perspective, not the kind of misty perspective you get in more northerly latitudes. And that influence of mosaic... He never actually worked in mosaic, but he studied mosaics He travelled very widely looking at Byzantine mosaics. And that was what his art was. And he says, you know, I didn't really think about colour. The colours just land... And his difficulty really was the fact that everything he looked at was so beautiful. And I think that became perhaps, I think in some ways that made it more difficult for him. I mean, the pictures kind of made themselves. So what was he to do? And I think that the sense, a lack of slight lack of bite or kick or whatever you want to call it, that people began to see in his work after the 50s, the later 50s when he was mostly in Greece I think it's the terrible cliche that happiness writes white and I think he was happy, it was beautiful, something went out of the art but that lived in the life This is the
1: LRB podcast If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading The London Review of Books to subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. You write about Craxton's playfulness in his paintings, the way that he'd hide the date of a painting on a beer bottle or work his signature into the pattern on a cigarette packet. I mean, is that, along with the sort of this lack of horror, as it were, compared to...
0: Yes. Francis Bacon
1: or Lucian Freud contribute to that.
0: um, Absolutely. I mean, he didn't. That was another way in which he wasn't a romantic. He wasn't tortured. I mean, in fact, he had very great difficulties and sadnesses in his life from time to time. Um, He was very close to his sister, Janet, and she died. It wasn't that that he lived a blissful, trouble-free life, but he didn't. His temperament, was his default mode was happiness and cheerfulness, and he didn't believe in taking anything, including art, too seriously. And that, of course, was not fashionable, particularly not to a world that was looking at these very um, tortured images of Bacon and Freud. And there was little Johnny Craxton having, having a ball on Crete. Um, it, it, didn't, it didn't cut the same amount of ice.
1: And his his outsiderness, the fact that he was sort of happy on Crete rather than miserable in London, so geograph physically geographically at the margins, but also at the margins of twentieth-century British art, more yes. metaphorically as well. And is that something that you find appealing about him? I was thinking that in Times Witness you write not about neo-romanticism, but about a number of antiquaries in the age of rom- Romanticism in the early nineteenth century. Many of those people could be described as sort of outsider historians. So do you find Craxton's outsiderness contributes to his appeal?
0: Um... It does to me, and the fact his complete lack of pomposity, his lack of taking himself too seriously, and of course one reason why he wasn't more famous was that he didn't. I mean, fame has a lot to do with wanting to be famous, and he didn't particularly. He wasn't it? Wasn't that bothered? So he didn't build his reputation in a way that he certainly because he, you know, as we discussed, he he either knew or knew how to get to know practically anybody, but he wasn't. He wasn't ambitious in that sense. And so he liked being where he was and stayed where he was happy rather than for as long as he could, um, rather than ploughing a sort of steeper furrow of reputation, connections and um, fame.
1: But he did continue to make famous friends, didn't he? It was Patrick Lee firmer for example. Did they meet in Crete or in Greece at any rate? Yes,
0: they, they met. It was, I mean, he, he'd always known people who were famous. I mean, he had a great intimate friendship and for a while a love affair with Margot Fontaine because he was a man who absolutely loved women and female company. And sometimes, although he was mainly gay, that sort of extended into a into a love affair, with sex for a while, and then he was dismayed by Margot Fontaine's ill-advised, as he saw it, marriage and her later unhappiness. But he was capable of these great, intense friendships. and But he wasn't really all that bothered by whether people were famous or weren't. He was more bothered about... I mean, again, his life was very much a continuation, by other means, of that... Craxton family home where there were some very famous people but there were a lot of people who weren't famous who were just there because people liked them and they got on and that I think was his guiding star rather than getting on
1: Yeah and there's a, there's a photograph of him on on a beach with with Patrick Lee Fermer sort of Mucking around (laughs) as if they're having a really nice time. Oh well, there Um, was a lot
0: of mucking around, and they were doing they were dancing, doing a kind of parody of the um, the zorba, the Greek dance. Um, Yes, I mean they were very happy.
1: Yeah, but there was a sort of professional relationship there as well. That there's that he some of the covers of Lee Fermer's books done by yes, Craxton. Craxton. and Were they done specially books. for the books or were they oh, his yes. paintings that were there? No,
0: no, no. He, he was a very good illustrator. He was a very good uh, theatre designer. That was how he met Margot Fontaine because he designed ballet sets. And again, he wasn't... He would turn his hand to many things. Um, he wasn't too grand to do anything. Um, I mean, he took it very seriously, that work. But he also enjoyed the theatre... Ashton, Patrick Ashton um, admired his work. So it was, um, yes. I mean, he was very versatile and very. He liked the theatre. Um, he was also, not surprisingly, very musical. So that was another another pleasure.
1: And then, of course, there was the relationship with Lucian Freud, which can very easily come to dominate any any account of Craxton. It? It's yeah. <laughs> quite nice not to, to, to talk about him without mentioning Freud at all, but. I looked Craxton up in the LRB archive and found two mentions of him from 40 whatever years before your piece in the current issue which I suppose gives a rough indication of his lack yeah. of fame if mentions in the LRB could be an index of that. And one was in a piece that you wrote about Elizabeth David in 1999 and the other was in a piece by Nicholas Penny on Freud from 1988. But there's no mention of Craxton in Colin Tabin's review of the first volume of William Fever's biography of Freud or in Celia Paul's response to the second volume. And is that an indicator of the extent to which Freud sort of pretended that he and Craxton hadn't been friends? They had been very close and they lived together, and then Freud sort of came to deny him completely almost.
0: Yes. I mean, it's a great irony, and I think Ian Collins ha- handles this very well in his book because he doesn't let it dominate, but it was. Craxton's career is kind of bracketed by these two relationships with Freud. The one at the beginning during the war when they were both poor and starting out and, well, in their late teens and were very close, were very intimate, worked on the same pictures together sometimes, drew and painted each other a lot, made the neighbour's life absolute hell with a lot of drinking and shouting And because, they, they, of course, at that point, everyone was buying Victorian pictures for the frames and they used to buy landseers and things and rip them out. And then there was this terrible crunching of broken glass, which um, was annoying for the people downstairs. But um, this very intense friendship, then, as such intense friendships tend to, over time, obviously Craxton was mostly not in England anymore, um, sort of, it just drifted apart it seemed at first but when Craxton came back, I mean he was chucked out of Greece at one point under the colonels because his sort of um, reckless charm and endless jokes at the expense of the local police eventually proved too much for a totalitarian regime. So he had to leave and when he reappeared by the time he reappeared Freud of course who was a compulsive myth maker about his own life had Moved on, and Craxton wasn't resentful of that. He says rather charmingly, Oh, well, um, Lucian dropped me when he found a better painter, meaning Francis Bacon, and he was that was fine. But what he couldn't accept was that Freud wouldn't accept that their past relationship had ever existed. And he went to great lengths to shut Craxton up to say that pictures that Craxton said were by. Lucian and and Craxton together weren't. He had pictures taken down from exhibitions. He didn't want Craxton meeting up with his new grand friends. And of course, Craxton, who wasn't really, that was what got him into so much trouble in Greece, he wasn't really in awe of anybody. And so when he looked at Freud's paintings, he did occasionally say um, he didn't think the perspective was quite right. And it was so long since anyone had spoken to Freud like that, of course, that didn't go down well. And the other thing which Freud couldn't bear was that Craxton was very vocally critical of the way that Freud treated women. Because Craxton, as I say, Craxton loved women. He had a lot of women friends and occasional female lovers. And he really disapproved of what he said was was Freud's kind of, well, misogynistic, he described it in the end, use and treatment of women. So Freud just did everything he could to make it seem that Craxton was just kind of, you know, a sad um, wannabe who was clinging on to his more famous friend who'd never really been his friend anyway, just an acquaintance. And because I think, I don't, who knows why, but um, Natasha Spender said it was slightly Craxton's own fault that he let himself become so obsessed with this. And um, he did, I suspect, because actually people who are not malicious, and Craxton was not malicious, and he was fundamentally fairly truthful. He could be very unreliable. Um, he could be very selfish. But I don't think the way that Freud behaved, I think he was baffled, probably. I don't know. But perhaps as much as anything, just baffled by what on earth was going on.
1: Yeah. I mean, the more... <laughs> the more you hear or read about Freud, the more he comes across as a complete monster, really. Um, and Craxton, you know, very much doesn't. But did that, I mean, presumably if Freud's treatment of him and determination to shut him out must have contributed to the waning of Craxton's reputation yes. and his sort of eclipsing.
0: Absolutely. Well, certainly if you think of it the other way around, if Freud had said when he when, when Craxton found himself chucked out of Greece, had welcomed him, Um, and chosen to promote his work, he could have done a lot for him. Or he could have just done nothing. But um, he did instead try to, as I say, positively squash Craxton's reputation. But then, I don't know, did Craxton mind about the reputation thing that much? I'm not sure. He minded desperately, as I say, being miscast as a romantic. And he also didn't, I mean... um, Derek Jarman wanted to make, and this is the other thing, because people want to appear in their own way, but um, Jarman wanted to make a film about Craxton, and Craxton said nay because he didn't want to appear in a dream sequence with a lot of sailors, which, as Collins says, is rather ironic, really, um, as he'd spent most of his life in a kind of dream sequence with a lot of sailors. Um, But, so, I think he, in the end, Freud could have helped and didn't, and did hinder, but Craxton just wasn't interested enough in being famous.
1: Yeah, whereas Freud was was very interested in, in
0: being well, famous. Well, Freud, I mean, Craxton has this extraordinary phrase about how um Lucian hangs well in his private angst academy. Um and <laughs> and um yes, Freud was desperately his his life's work really was his life. And Craxton, couldn't be bothered, really. I mean, one warms to him the more you think about it. And he just... It's almost like a parable, the two of them. And, of course, Craxton's life, well written... Though its been, I mean, it's a great argument. As someone who's written a biography and a book with a lot of biographical portraits in it and has never wanted to deal with anyone who's even in living memory, because it's such a nightmare. Um, but... Collins makes a very powerful case indirectly for writing about for writing the life of someone you've known and he knew Craxton well in the last part of his life because Collins does capture all those very ephemeral things about his humour, about his warmth, the trouble he would take to do things like um, giving children a ride on his motorbike um, or in the most sweet detail that when he was too ill to drink Armagnac anymore, and he was quite a heavy drinker, but he couldn't drink it anymore, and he would just put it behind his ears like scent. And that's just so engaging. And so I'm very glad that this uh, this life, the kind of butterfly life, has been caught um, so beautifully.
1: But it did. I mean, Freud's rejection of him, and not in terms of what it did to his reputation as a painter necessarily, but simply, presumably, personally, that this person, they had been very close, they had been very good friends. At one point, they'd been closer to one another than to anyone else. And the total rejection did rankle, didn't it?
0: it? It more than rankled, I think. It sort of became an obsession. And because also Craxton, as he moved through life, having all these various on-off love affairs, some more casual than others, and ultimately a civil partnership, but he, um, he tended to stay friends with everybody, I mean, it wasn't, um, again, you know, not very romantic. There were no terrible hair-pulling scenes um, and hysterics. And so I think, yeah, I think he was just... He was baffled and obsessed and unfortunately obsessed. And so um, when he was very ill and the consultant said to him, what are your priorities for the rest of your life? And he said, I must outlive Lucian Freud. And she said... Who's Lucian Freud? Which must have been the most wonderful moment for Craxton.
1: Yeah, he could die happy. But, I mean, he didn't out. I mean, Freud outlived Craxton by a year or two, didn't he? So, you know, even, even that competition, as it were, Freud won.
0: He did. But I think, yeah, and Freud will always win the reputation game, but Craxton wins at life.
1: Rosemary Hill, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read Rosemary Hill's piece on John Craxton in the latest issue of the LRB, along with Emily Wilson on the Aristophanes, Joanna Biggs on Annie Erno, and Rebecca Carl on China's economy. On next week's podcast, the third episode of Irina Dimitrescu and Mary Wellesley's series of Encounters with Medieval Women on Chaucer's Wife of Bath. This episode was produced by Eliane Glazer. The music is by Kieran Brunt. The producer of the LRB podcast is Anthony Wilkes, and I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you